Hey gang, and welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey. Got a great episode in store today, man. I'm so excited for y'all to listen into this uh, with Ben Bradbury. Um, let me give you a quick bio, probably the best way to learn a little bit more about him. He's obsessed with empowering founders to connect with their customers through empathetic communication. He's worked work with public company CEOs, venture-backed startups, and Amazon best-selling book launches to create astute messages that connect with audiences' hearts and heads. Ben was previously head of operations at Glycer, leading the team's New York office to their first ever profitable quarter. He's currently based in the UK after living in Bali for most of 2019 and has a degree in history from the University of Sheffield. I've had a chance to chat with Ben on a couple different occasions, first time having him on the podcast. And I'm telling you what, man, we go deep into empathy and getting outside your comfort zone and you know how he took the leap um, to leave his corporate job and actually go into doing some stuff on his own. So this is a tremendously valuable conversation. He's just a good dude all around with a lot of great knowledge. Um, so I hope you all in, uh, enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat today with Ben Bradbury. Let's get it started. Ben, awesome to have you on the podcast, man. Excited to chat again. Brian, excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Dude, 100%. Um, I, I wanted to talk to you for a while on the podcast. I know we've had some conversations before. Uh, but I want to dig down in some stuff because I think a lot of the things that you've uncovered can really help uh, folks, you know, get started on their own path or, or continue. Sure. On it. I don't know where this conversation is going to go, to be honest with you. There's a, there's a lot of things I want to chat about. I, here's where I want to start, though. And let's take it from there. You mentioned something in a piece you recently wrote about this delta between the age of seven and the age of 20 and 20 mm -hmm. being this like realization you came about. Um, and I think a part of that's obviously on, you know, more the empathetic communication and those type of things, but really it was around, you thought everyone was out to get you when you were younger. Um, that's right. And all, and all of a sudden there was this epiphany. So can you share a little bit about it? Let's first start off with why did you think everyone was out to get you? Where did that mentality come from as a young, uh, as a young boy? Sure. So the story starts when I was seven. And before then, I'd had a pretty happy childhood, plenty of good memories, plenty of friends. And when I turned seven, I woke up one day and black blotches appeared all over my body. And the average human has about 80,000 platelets. And I was 80,000 platelets short. And these are the things in your body that regulate blood clotting. So they're pretty important, Brian. And so my mum rushes me to the hospital, has no idea what's going on. And I ended up spending a week in intensive care. And I didn't really know it at the time, but I came pretty close to not leaving. What I did realize is the scary nature of being up close with the bright lights of a hospital for a week. And when I came away, I started becoming very anxious about my health and feeling the need to prove myself at school. I'm an August baby. So here in the UK, that means I'm right at the bottom of my year group. And, uh, and generally was given special treatment status by staff because I had to have daily trips to the school hospital. And this ended up triggering an emotional downturn. All these kind of factors stacked up on top of each other and the unstable boy underneath toppled over. And so from that point, I found it very hard to trust people. And I'm a big believer that really the, the stable foundation of any relationship is trust. And so not having that as a young child 
meant that I really struggled to build relationships at school. And that's why I developed this victim mentality of thinking that or feeling like the world was out to get me. People from my previous school who had been my friends thought I was weird, thought I was a freak, couldn't really internalize this at the time because funnily enough, being seven years old, I didn't know what emotional intelligence was or how to start processing it. And uh, and so, yeah, that meant there was a uh, a 12-year chapter. And I do want to stress that this was very much punctuated by moments of happiness. This is not a, a black and white story. I think truths are often far more nuanced than we give ourselves credit for. So just to uh, make that clear, but it did have this chapter where for 12 years, I really did struggle to build relationships. And that was really anchored in this victim mentality. So was your home life good? And it was just at school or friends that were kind of, you know, like, did you have good support from your parents then? Or I think that's one of the big reasons why I've made this out the other side, to be honest with you, is that I could count on whenever I came home, that there was love as soon as I walked through the door. So my mom and dad, bless their hearts, raised me. They told me a couple of years ago, like we thought it was very important for you and your brother to have unconditional love whenever you wanted it. And so I think one of the things that really did make this very, uh, very doable is that I could come home and know that with no judgment, I could cry to my mom, I could tell my dad about everything that had gone wrong, and they would just sit and listen. They might give me a bit of advice, but ultimately, they would just listen. And I think that's one of the, the big lessons that I've taken forward today is that um, a lot of the time, especially men are so driven to solutions. Men want to make progress. They want to move forward. But actually, I think we can learn a lot from women and from feminist tendencies, which is to slow down and swap the solutions for emotions and actually just start listening a little bit more to the problems people have. And so now uh, this year, for example, when one of my friends had a, a pretty tough time, I just gave her a message and said, look, if you want to chat, I'm here for you. And I fully committed to two hours plus on the calendar of just sitting there and repeating that sucks if that's what I needed to do. And I think, I think being able to hold that space in today's go-go environment is really very important. When, when you were growing up then, so I, yeah, you mentioned, you know, I have a, I have a young child at home and that's a, that's a tough time to kind of figure it out. Cause you're asking a million questions, but you don't really understand sure. at that age. So do you remember the age when you really started to think that, wait a minute, I, because it, it, from through a lot of the work, the conversations we've, we've had before, you think a lot differently. I think that's why you and I probably get along really well is you think a lot differently than others. So when did you feel like you started to say, Hey, I'm different in terms of how I think about the world, my perspective on things. That's a good question. I think the, the cop-out answer to this is that it's always easier with hindsight, but I'll tell you why. And I think being able to spot the gaps in narrative where there are really seismic shifts in how you see the world is one of the beautiful things that comes with self-awareness. So I'll give you an example. My last year of school, I'm 17, and my parents come back to this year a lot. And they come back to it because I was the deputy house captain of my house at school. And we ended up winning the house drama. We placed in the house music. I was in the house uh, debating team. I was in winning the house cup for the, the first time since I'd been in the house. We were this underdog house that never anything and, and we ended up winning. And 
at the time I kind of just shrugged it off. I was like, that was me just doing what I love. I love arts. I love creativity. And uh, I, I love building up people most importantly and helping them feel understood and realize their potential. But looking back on that in, in hindsight, especially this year, and there, for example, there was no reason for me to go to my teacher and say, I want to be in the school play and just go and do it. There was no reason for me to volunteer and say, I'll help lead that thing or get involved. But I think the, the bias to be curious about how people and how teams come together certainly was catalyzed when I was 17. And I think, to be honest, I'm still figuring out lens on life looks. I think it, it is a fair statement what you've said that uh, maybe I do think differently to the average Joe. But then again, I think tuning in and listening to this episode of Just Get Started is probably thinking differently as well because they want to change their lives and get started. So I don't think it's a, it's a fixed process of saying I think differently. What really matters to me is the acceptance of saying I am learning to think differently and I'm okay with that. Yeah, that's, a, that's a good way to frame it, I guess. And yeah, you know, one of the things I was getting to is that it doesn't happen overnight. You know, you, you have these glimpses of like, you know, your opinion on something or perspective on it. And you start like, I, you seem like you've kind of, again, you're learning, but figured out a little bit earlier, like it was probably until my early thirties, probably until I actually figured out like, wait a minute, I, I have a different perspective and, and view of the world than most everyone mm. I'm around. It, I don't know if I, if I recognize that, but I have glimpses of recognizing that to your say the hindsight of that. There were those times in the past I can go look back to um, and also realize that, hey, maybe I did have some of that, but I just didn't recognize it at the time of, of what it was. I hadn't formulated it yet in my mind, you know? Totally. And, and just to top that up, I think a good way of looking at this from, from what you've just shared is that we don't age through our years. We age through our stories. And so there are people who are listening to this that are younger than you and I, Brian, who will have figured this out years ago. There will also be people listening who are older who have not figured this out. And that is really the big barometer for age is the experiences that we share. And so that's why I'm so interested by founders who have 50 years experience because they have success. They have thought leadership, if you like. They are thought leaders in their fields, but often what you see so much is that they haven't converted this intellectual capital to online. And so when you think about that, you might say that they haven't, they haven't learned it because you think they might not have the age, but really it's that they haven't shared their stories in the right arena. Yeah. So let's go back to, I want to make sure we, I want to put a pin in this here. So what happens at the age of 20 you said you had this realization. It was this kind of epiphany. What, sure. what happened? Yeah, so that was a cold September evening, almost exactly six years ago, actually, the time of recording, which is end of September 2020. And I was standing in my university room, putting my arm through the jumper that I had worn for days on end with no change, when suddenly a lightning bolt struck my brain. And I really do mean, Brian, this was a switch that flipped. And the switch was realizing, as I held my head in my hands, that you have a victim mentality. The world is not out to get you, Ben. A large part of your misfortune is up to you. And this was the first, I think, moment where I can say I became self-aware. 
And that was really, I think Naval Ravikant has a great quote on this, which is that your trauma creates you. And I think the 12 years or so of hardship that I'd had before then had really forged the gateway to be able to find this self-awareness. Now, for everyone listening, just for context, I wouldn't advocate sitting by yourself in a room and waiting till it figures out. Use someone else in, in your circle, ask some smart questions and um, what I call a sounding board. And um, you can read about that in uh, the blog on empathetic communication that I've just shared. But what I would say that's, um, that is important for me is that that victim mentality, that was the subtlety in my story. And the subtlety means a word or a phrase that when you hear it and it's shared about you makes you feel understood. So Brian, for example, your one word is a navigator because you help people navigate through the tricky waters of entrepreneurship and life and help them just get started. And in much the same way, I realized that at 20 in that moment, the victim mentality was a subtlety that I'd been missing. And I wasn't just the problem. I was actually the solution as well. And that allowed me to start turning my life in a slightly different direction. Again, it's not a black and white change, but just slowly but surely start making progress in the right direction. Yeah. And how do you feel, you know, this, it kind of reminds me of, um, have you ever, uh, have you ever read David Goggins book? Can't hurt me. I haven't. I, I've listened to his Joe Rogan and I was blown away. Dude, by the way, I, as I tell everyone, get the audio book because it's mm -hmm. way better. There's a lot more content in there than the, the actual book. You can, Is it him narrating? It's not. He actually has his editor narrate, um, but they, okay. and there's a reason for that, but they do like a, like mini podcast in between each chapter and he gives additional. Oh, okay. It's, it's, I like it's it. phenomenal. The reason I mentioned that there's one part in there that kind of reminds me of what you just said, where he, you know, he's in high school and he basically looks in what he calls the accountability mirror and basically changes. You know, he says, I turn from David Goggins to Goggins and he like shaves his head and he has this complete epiphany. And he's done that a couple of times through his life and he, and he shares that. So it's similar to what you mentioned is like at some point you kind of all these things bubble up and it, there's a tipping point for you. It was that lightning bolt that you said hit you, but it was probably from many things that happened prior that you didn't even think about that all of a sudden bubbled totally. up to the top, right? Yeah, totally. And just to add a little bit of spice in the mix, I don't actually think it has to happen this way for everybody. So it's not necessarily a case that things will bubble up and, and you'll hit this critical breaking point. I, I disagree with that as a blanket rule. I think for other people, it's much more subtle. And so the, the experiences and the stories that you're aging through, they might provide little reference points and breaks of perspective saying, oh, that's interesting. Like I'll, I'll give you an example. Last year, I spent eight months out in Bali in Indonesia. And while I didn't publish much online, I got a lot of internal feedback from the people I met, which is that you really have a knack for communication. Like you're good with words and, and putting things together. And I heard this feedback dozens of times over the year, and that gave me this very subtle but important shift towards embracing communication as my gift, as the thing that I find easy that other people find hard. And so that wasn't a, a huge epiphany moment, but it has unlocked immense value in my life and, and my business. So all that to say that there are infinite roads to the top of the mountain. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. And and there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's a matter, I think, what you had mentioned, though, which is important is 
the self-awareness at some point is to continue to analyze, continue to think through. I think part of this comes down to maybe it's just me, but like figuring out what you really want and not worry about the external factors. Because I think a lot of the times I was like this when I was, when I was younger, what I wanted was partially influenced by what others wanted for me or what I saw out there. It wasn't really truly what I wanted. Like if I was, if there was no one in the room and it was just me talking to myself, being honest with what I wanted, it wasn't the case until, you know, many years later. Um, so I think that's important, the self-awareness piece, right? Um, yeah. Just to come back on that, one of the philosophers that I've become, well, the philosopher that I've become obsessed with this year is a man by the name of Rene Girard. And he has this theory called mimesis and mimetic desire, which is basically the idea that you don't desire, Brian, what you want to desire. You desire what the person next to you does. So put two babies in a room, surround them with a hundred toys and give one baby the shiny red race car. What toy does the other baby want? The shiny red race car, right? Because right. the other one has it. And this principle I think babies is such an interesting case study for, for human behavior, but this applies so much to us. And I think one of the things that can get in the way of navigating realities that we want to embrace is desiring the thing that other people want. So one of the values, the six values of my agency is that trust is built with authenticity. And that's because for the clients that we work with, we want to support them as their, as heroes in their story but that's just it. They are the hero or the heroine. They're not a copy of someone else. They're singular. And so I would encourage everyone listening to really dig into why you want the things that you want. I think Brian is really onto something here and being able to recognize, do I actually want this or do I want this thanks to mimetic desire, thanks to the desires of somebody else? Well, to that point a little bit, and, and this goes back to, I wanted to, I had a note down here to talk about is um, the comfort zone. And you talked about mm -hmm. this a little bit in the article, but at some point, the things that you want, you have most likely you have to get outside your comfort zone to get those things. As, as I put it is I think most people, and again, I put myself in that category of where I was, would rather be semi-happy, but comfortable instead of getting really uncomfortable for a short period of time Mm -hmm. And what would consider, they want to be unhappy, but in, in that very uncomfortable zone to get to a better place of happiness. So I think it's that bubble of getting outside the comfort zone for just a short, I, I think you call it the burst of discomfort, right? Right. Um, you're not always going to be in that discomfort because eventually that becomes comfortable, whatever, you know, whatever you do, right? So can you share a little bit about your thoughts around the, the comfort zone and the importance of figuring out how to get out of it or trying things to get out of it? Absolutely. So to put it candidly, the comfort zone is where great potential comes to die. If you're stuck in your comfort zone for too long, it's stagnating, it's miserable, and ultimately it holds you back from achieving everything you're capable of. Now, as you've rightly pointed out, Brian, no one is expected to leave their comfort zones overnight at once. We engage in these small gradual steps of pushing ourselves further and further out and then coming back to a system of support, what I call, as you rightly said, bursts of discomfort. So let's imagine for a second that you've spent a whole career offline and building your success, and now suddenly you realize what this huge digital opportunity is in front of you, but you have no idea how to do it. You don't have the skill set. 
it's not it's not native to you you're what we could call a digital baby in that sense now is the approach to go and set up every social media channel and start posting five times a week absolutely not start small find the channel that works for you find the medium that works for you do you prefer writing do you prefer sharing engaging images perhaps you're best on video but find whichever medium works for you, find which channel works for you as well, and start small. Commit to a post a week, and then you can ramp it up over time. But the key thing, and what we're doing here, is we're being very intentional with taking small steps out of the comfort zone each time, and then coming back to get feedback, to learn, and repeat. Because what we're doing, Brian, is building cycles. So we complete one cycle, we take a step out of the comfort zone, we step back in, get feedback, and improve for the next iteration. So small, consistent bursts of discomfort allow us to pick up new skills that we otherwise wouldn't have access to. On that point a little bit, and this is going to go a little tangential, but I'm curious your thoughts, because as I was thinking you know, through the preparation of this conversation, I thought back a moment, I actually two moments I haven't thought about for a long time in my life, but it's around. So I've actually always had, um, and I had a sports psychologist call me out on this, which was, which was one of a big a stepping point in my life around the fear of success. Mm. So a lot of times we talk about, you know, discomfort and getting out of the comfort zone is really doing something that we may fail at, we may whatever, but actually knowing you're good at something and almost having the fear to be on top or to be, um, to be good. You know, I, it's so funny. This is going to sound so weird, but the, the first moment I thought of is, and my, if my brother listens, I don't know if he will, but I'm going to tell him this story next time we talk, but we used to play, you know, Madden football is right. You know, like mm -hmm. the, the video games. So we used to, I mean, we used to compete. We still compete to this day. Um, him and I were only 17 months apart. But he was the older brother. And again, being the middle child, this comes back to a lot of kind of the inner psychology of things. But I remember back in those days, now I never told him this, but like I used to let him win at like, for instance, I'd be up by like 20 points in a game and slowly he'd creep back thinking obviously he was better. But the reality is like I would maybe throw it on four downs when I'd run it or something. And I was thinking that, that uh, yesterday actually of like, I, because if I won, that would have been like, maybe he wouldn't like me as much or maybe whatever. Like there was this, all this wow. kind of like, I, I think anxiety of like, oh my God, what if I was better than my older, you know, my big brother that I look up to yeah. type thing. And it's, and then, like I said, I had this sports psychologist when I, you know, I, I was uh, big into golf. I used to teach golf for a living and stuff and had the sports psychologist basically say like, Brian, you're, you're letting your mind get in the way. Like you hit the ball. Well, you can play if you just stop thinking. And you're scared of like actually shooting a good score. Um, and that was huge for me because that was like, I had always kind of, you know, broke down maybe the last hole or two or whatever. And, and partly he was saying like, that's, that's a mentality of like not wanting to be on top. Not that I was going to be some great player or anything, but anyways, I, I was curious. That was a long tangent, but like, have you ever thought about from that angle of like folks having trouble going outside their comfort zone because they're actually fearful of being in the limelight, being successful? I, I, don't, I don't know. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think a large part of this does come down to imposter syndrome and feeling like we haven't earned the limelight that we do. I think going back to 
the earlier example of stepping into the digital realm, leaving your comfort zone there is is a funny one because you already are a thought leader if you have something to share online. Mm. And so the really interesting part of this is not that you need to learn the, the digital platforms. By comparison, that's actually quite easy. It's embracing that you have something to say. And so, for example, one of the clients that I'm working with uh, this year is he's been part of two game-changing technologies in his industry before, and he's about to launch the third. And he approached me saying, look, we've got this great experience, this, um, these stories to draw on, and I want to generate some hype for the new product that we're launching and generate some real results. And so with that, it's the, the experience is already there. It's then just a case of becoming comfortable with your fit. Now, to answer the, the question directly on the fear of the spotlight, I think that can be certainly a very tricky obstacle. And I do empathize with anyone who worries about that. I, I can look back not too long ago to maybe three, three and a half years ago when I started posting online and, and distributing content. And there was definitely some, some anxiety around, oh, look at all my friends that I've, that I've made. What are they going to think of this? And the truth is, Brian, the friends that I had three, nearly four years ago, just coming out of university, I'm now friends with a totally group of people for, for the most part. And that those are people that accept me for who I am and, and for my values. And so I think a, a big part of overcoming this is realizing that if you are stepping into the limelight, there are a bunch of like-minded people who think differently to you that will accept you. And no matter what niche that is, no matter what your subject matter expertise might be, there will always be people online who you can call your community. You mentioned the word empathy a couple of times. So I want to make sure we, we get into that because it's, it's a huge part of my life. I know it is yours. I'll ask this to start is when did, when did you find empathy? When did you realize empathy was a part of who you were as a human being? or a big part of it? It's funny. I've spent a good four or five months this year working on my empathetic communication process and distilling that into five steps. And each of the five steps comes from a story in my life, a moment in my life. But to pinpoint the exact moment that... I realized I was empathetic, perhaps doesn't do the term justice. Because the point, and, and what I believe is important, is to build a practice or a routine or nay, even a ritual around empathy so that we are consistently putting ourselves in other people's shoes and responding with our best perspective. What I can answer is when I realized the power of empathy. And when I realized the power of empathy was at a meetup in New York City. And I'd never been to this meetup before. And so the person facilitating said, we're going to do an exercise in empathetic listening. And you can either pair up with a stranger or pair up with someone you know really well. And I thought, well, that's my choice made for me. So I turned to the nearest person who was also a stranger. He was called Merrim. Said, hey, I'm Ben, nice to meet you. You wanna be partners? Sure, let's be partners. And the exercise is very simple. Share a little bit about what's going well for you and the other person can only respond with the same three words to start their questions, Brian. And those words were, what's it like? 
What's it like, Ben, when you move to New York City only knowing one person? What's it like when you dropped your day job and decided just to get started with your own dream? These questions flip an IQ conversation to an EQ conversation. They pull back the intellectual facade and dig at the emotions underneath. And by asking these questions and listening to the responses, the other prompt we had to share in the exercise when our partner was talking and giving us answers was when we responded, if I were you, I imagine I would feel. And that right there is empathetic communication because you are taking yourself out of your shoes, out of your cloudy reality that has so many problems and so many things going on in your head and stepping into someone else's and helping them see clearly. And I tell you, Brian, I'd met this guy, Merrim, for six minutes and we had one of the most profound conversations I had that year. He absolutely nailed a key character trait of mine when he said, if I were you, Ben, I imagine I would feel like I have this mindful hunger about me. And I still remember that phrase because he nailed it. And it showed me the power of empathy and it showed me the power of when we step outside our world and make someone else the priority for that wonderful moment in time. That's a pretty cool story. Uh, are you, do you still keep in contact with him? We are, uh, admittedly, no, we are friends on Facebook, but okay. we had we had a very long hug afterwards. <laughs> I think we, we both had the... Uh, the same feeling that this was something very special. Yeah, that's pretty cool, though. Um, well, so how, how could other folks, because th there's that, as you know, that scale, right? Some folks are extremely empathetic. They get it. They understand the, the social awareness aspect of it. And others just, you know, we talk with people every day that are just like, they don't get it. So how can folks look to see, are they empathetic on what scale? And then how do they improve if, uh, if they want to improve? Sure. Well, first of all, I think everybody's empathetic. It's just a question of degrees. So to start, if you want to start communicating more empathetically, you've got to start by identifying your subtlety. So this is that word or phrase that I mentioned at the start, which when heard makes you feel understood. And that for me, Brian, is really the reason I get up in the morning. It's to help leaders feel understood by their customers and employees so that they can change the world together. And I believe that that feeling of feeling understood starts when you understand yourself. And that starts with a subtlety. So the way to get more empathetic is to pair up with a sounding board. So somebody else who can listen to what you have to say. And let's be honest, for everyone listening, you are at the center of your unique universe. It is the heart, you are the hardest person to see clearly in your entire life. And so pair up with a friend, someone who knows you well, to help determine this subtlety. Now your subtlety is found at the intersection of three things. Number one, your unique greatness. Number two, what you care about. And number three, what your audience cares about, the people that you're trying to reach. So. How are we going to find that? Well, you're going to deliver a series of prompts to your sounding board. And you need to tell them that, first of all, it's okay to make me uncomfortable, coming back to what Brian said about leaving the comfort zone. And secondly, that it's okay to be curious. So if something catches their attention, that it's okay to dig deeper and mine for potential. So then you're going to give them a set of answers and you're gonna answer the following five questions. Number one, where do you add the most value to your target audience? So what really sets you apart? 
Number two, what are the one to three biggest problems your target audience faces? So what do they care about? Remember, empathy is taking yourself out of your skin and putting it in someone else's shoes. Not literally, by the way, that probably would be quite uncomfortable. Number three, what language are your target audience using to describe their pain points? So when they have these problems, what are the words or phrases that they're using? Number four, what does the definition of success look like for you and for your business? And fifth and finally, what sets you apart as a leader? Why are you uniquely qualified to do what you do? And as you share your answers with the sounding board, they're going to listen to the words and phrases and pay attention, and they're going to figure out what resonates with them and what captures their imagination. Now, the details are incredibly important here. And so why I say that is because it's not just what you say, but you really need to zoom in on what those words and phrases are. And so to evaluate the potential of your subtlety, ask yourself, does this improve my target audience's life or business, this word or phrase? Is it evergreen? Could I communicate this across the long term for years, potentially decades? And most importantly, does it provoke an emotional reaction? Because empathetic communication are messages that reach your heart and head. And if it doesn't reach the heart, it's unlikely to connect with your target audience. So that's very much the foundation, Brian, of communicating empathetically. It started, the whole process is started by unlocking your story's subtlety. One of the other things I've I actually think about a lot, I'm you know, taking this from like a sales, you know, standpoint, from a business standpoint, is the empathetic communication when this is going to sound kind of interesting, I think, or weird, but like not when you don't talk to the, the client, let's say the target audience, meaning knowing them enough where picking up those subtleties of, again, I'm using this as a sales example. If they don't get back to me for a few weeks, it's not, I don't have to pepper them with emails and say, Hey, you know, Oh, have you seen my email or have you, have you got my voice? Like they got it. But if I understand their situation, what they deal with, again, I'm empathetic to the things that are going on in the world. I understand that I may not be top priority, which is okay, but being able to relay that and be okay with it um, and take a step back from that, in that patience we talked about earlier without having to kind of get all jumbled or, or, you know, again, make it about me again, like from a selfish, like, why aren't they getting back to me? Well, there's a reason, but if I understand their business, I have an idea of actually probably what's going on. I don't, maybe I don't know fully, but I can assume based on, uh, you know, kind of the target audience. Do you agree with that at all? Or would you have another perspective on that? I actually think that's a great nuance. I think a couple of examples come to mind. One is I saw a leaked memo fairly recently to Warren Buffett and his take on uh, Microsoft and its and why he didn't invest in them. And that obviously being the main reason I read the memo, the subject line of the memo was go Huskers. And the guy goes on to talk about the Huskers, I think it's an ice hockey team, although don't quote me on that, um, where Buffett is from, Omaha, Nebraska, and spends like a good half a page talking to one of the world's most ri richest men about his his Huskers, the, the team that he loves. And Buffett, when he replies in the email, spends a good paragraph talking about the Huskers and the problem with their, their season. But the point is that this guy understood that to connect with Buffett, he had to connect with his head and his heart. And he has other priorities than just Berkshire Hathaway 24-7. I sent an email yesterday 
to someone who I'm uh, talking to about renting a room that they, um, that they have to film the latest season of my podcast very soon. And before getting into any of it, in the first sentence, I mentioned the charity bike ride that he did and wished him that it was a good event. And that's because, again, he has other priorities than just me. I am a, a tiny dot on his ever-growing to-do list. And so if I can say to someone, hey, I appreciate that you're busy. I appreciate that you've just started this company and you might not have time, or I appreciate that you've just started this initiative and I might be a lower priority, but X, Y, Z, just to show that you appreciate the cadence that of which people communicate. So I think that's a great nuance. Well, and it goes back to, you know, you mentioned earlier about the, you know, trust and communication, right, from a relationship standpoint. And, and, I, and I would throw in there, I think respect um, comes out of that, that you're just showing them that, I, you know, listen, we're human beings, we have a lot of balls in the air things that we're doing, that I understand that, you know, and again, I think that's how you word emails, potentially, that's how you start conversations. Again, that's how you don't... No, like I said, I go back to the sales realm, but like people that follow up four times in a week, like, hey, did you get my last email? Well, obviously, all you're caring about is yourself. You're not looking at it and putting yourself, as you mentioned, in their you know, hypothetical shoes. So I think that's a great point is that we have to understand that people have other things going on. If we can be empathetic to their situation, we have a better chance of building that long-term relationship, which is what it's about, right? You know? Totally. All right, you mentioned... Uh, you mentioned the podcast season three. I get, let, let's let's chat about it. I'm excited to hear what's uh, what's going on with subject matter. Yeah, absolutely. So a large part of what we've talked about here today, Brian, is going to form the foundation for the season, and that is empathetic communication. And so the the goal of season three is helping our audience understand how to better connect with their customers and their employees' hearts and heads. And so we're going to be taking a deep exploration into the five-step process, which is step one, identify, then listen, then respond, then connect, and then fifth and finally understand your target audience. And so there's going to be an episode on each of the process, on each of the steps in the process that we'll be digging into. We'll also be interviewing other subject matter experts who are already deploying empathetic communication and understanding how they are connecting with their customers and their employees and their businesses. And we'll also be digging in and getting real because let's face it, this is not an easy process. And as we've talked about the comfort zone being this big enemy and specifically the fear of leaving the comfort zone is something that slows people's slows people down almost to a standstill sometimes. And so we'll be getting real on some of the problems that you face in communicating empathetically and delivering real practical solutions on how to actually solve them. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Why did you ultimately decide to get into podcasting when you did? So this is, this is going to need a story. So it was July. 2018. And I'd just been to Next Gen Summit, which I know we both know very, very well. And it was my first one. And I met this interesting guy called Tom. And we are having lunch at the Smith on Upper West Side in Manhattan. I was living in New York at the time. And I was telling him a bit about my situation. I said, well, I'm going to leave my current startup. I want to try working for myself. My side hustle of ghostwriting, which is what I was doing at the time, is going well. I wanted to take that full time. But I don't really know where I'm going to go. And Tom said to me, well, it's a lovely day on Saturday. I said, yes, the sun's supposed to be shining. What do you, what do you want to do? He said, 
I want to spend five hours in this WeWork with no natural light and figure this out with you. I said, all right, this sounds like my kind of energy. And so on Saturday, we go to WeWork Madison, lock ourselves in room B1, I believe, with a huge whiteboard. And the formula was very simple, Brian. I told the story about where I wanted to go, and Tom ripped it apart. He's a devil's advocate, and that's why I love him and hate him all at the same time. And by the end of that five hours, we had this very comprehensive document where I finally understood the direction I wanted to go. But perhaps even more magical than that is that a couple of days later, we realized, hang on a second, you know when I told the stories and you ripped them apart, that would be pretty good as a podcast, right? And that's how Subject Matter was born, as, a, as an experiment, honestly, between two friends to provide two different perspectives on the matters that are at hand. And then season two, I took the show solo and made it an interview format. And we started talking about decision-making because decision-making comes back to having different perspectives that a lot of people miss. And so we offered two mental models that people can get behind per episode. And then the interviews would apply those mental models at the same time. So season three is very much the next evolution. Now we have that context of how to make better decisions. Now we're learning how to connect and use those decisions effectively in the realm of empathetic communication. You mentioned something in that story, uh, really, really unique, by the way, um, which is which is cool. But you mentioned something there I think could be valuable for a lot of folks listening. You, you had said you were in New York, you're working a full time job, doing your side hustle of ghostwriting, and you were making the decision to leave that and go full time on your on your own. So, yep. can you share a little bit more about that decision making process of actually how? not just why you wanted to do stuff on your own. I mean, we can probably assume, but you can give you know more insight there, but really is how were you set up to make that leap? You know, both on a financial standpoint, you know, mindset standpoint, maybe it was having the right, you know, mentors in, in your corner. Can you share a little about that? Cause I feel like that's where a lot of folks get hung up on to actually take that leap. Yeah, absolutely. So a framework that I come back to a lot, and this was the penultimate episode, episode 14 of season one, is the, the idea of the three pillars that control your life. So everyone has three pillars. You have your home, your roof over your head, your relationships, the people you surround yourself with, and your work, what you do for a living. And the, the key argument is that if you're going to make a shift in any one of those three pillars, you should weight down the other two with security. So let's look at the situation I was in a couple of years ago. So I knew I needed to make this, this shift. And for context, the uh, reasons why I wanted to give this a go, I wanted to see if I could ultimately build my own business. Things were going well. I had enough feedback. Uh, and my mum was a big inspiration. She's worked for herself in all the time I've been alive. And uh, I think a large part of me actually wanted to just follow in her footsteps and see if I could do it as well. And so Coming back to the three pillars, I knew I was going to make this pretty seismic shift with my work. There was a lot of unknown unknowns. There's, there's not much I, uh, I knew about the, um, the world of working for myself, but I just had a gut feeling to, to try it. And so what I did to lubricate this decision and to really smooth the process was to weight down the other two pillars with security. So relationships, first of all. I had a long-term girlfriend at the time. We had a flat in London. So as soon as I went home, I had my living situation sorted. It was just a case of finding a co-working and I could get on with it. I had all my friends in London. I was close to my family again. So it wasn't like I was sacrificing on the relationship front at all. 
I was going back very much um, to a place of security. And it's the exact same thing with, uh, with my home and having that pillar as well, very much weighted down. But it's not just the roof over my head, it was the routines that I had. I'd already lived in that house for in that flat in, in London for a good four or five months. And so when I went there, it wasn't a case of figuring out this new environment, which I was doing almost a year previously in New York. It was right, here's the city that I know, I know what I like, I know what I need to do. Let's go find the environment that helps me get after it. So really reducing the number of potentially volatile variables that could get in the way of stopping me doing this. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't mention as well that I had a healthy pipeline of recurring clients, revenue, and opportunities in the future. I did not go in kind of cold saying, let's see if this works. I'd, have a, I'd had at that point a proven model that had been generating revenue for nine months and was growing nicely and I was hiring ghostwriters to help me. And so it wasn't a case of just flicking a switch. A large part of it was being intentional with testing whether this is something people are worth paying for in the first place as it was still my side hustle. And that's why I wanted to make sure we we hit the, the home run on was that you didn't just say, all right, I'm leaving this. And then day one on your own, you're like, all right, let's figure out how to make some money. It's you've been testing this for a while, um, building up your side hustle, building up the clients, building up your skill set, right? And, and improving that, building up your name out there. So ultimately you could make that leap, um, which, which I think again is, is a testament to if you have those dreams, if you have those visions of like, hey, I want to do something on my own, well, then you need to put the time in when you ha- when you can make time. And maybe that has to become a better priority in your life, right? To be able to say, hey, if I want to do something on my own, well, I got to start, you know, Gary Vee talks about this a lot is like that between, you know, nine and one in the morning type stuff. I mean, you could do it whenever you're available, but being able to put time into that side hustle, quote unquote, is valuable, right? To be able to push you ahead in the future. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the side hustle acts as a really um, powerful vehicle for validation. And that's the key part because you never, life is too short to build a product that nobody wants. And so if you're worrying about whether something is or isn't a good idea, figure out people's problems and build a solution around them. And most importantly, just test it. See if it's something that people are actually willing to pay for. The best form of product validation is money in your pocket. And so if someone is willing to pay for your product or service, that's usually a pretty big tell that you at least have planted the seed of being onto something. And that gives you the momentum that you might need to go and build this into something bigger. Yeah. Well, let me ask you on, on this, and we'll, we'll maybe this will be the, the ending point here. Um, I always ask folks, and because there's a million pieces of advice you can give and you know, at different stages, but I actually think this will be interesting for you. What if you had, let's simplify it so much. If you had to go back to the seven-year-old Ben and give a piece of advice to help him, how simple, how, one, how would you simplify it? And two, what would you say to him? That's a great question. Because it's not just a case of what would the advice of 26-year-old Ben be, it's what would seven-year-old Ben actually receive? Well, I'd probably capture his imagination, to be honest. I mean, that's, I think, one of the the great beauties of life is never losing your childlike streak. And uh, I get my imagination captured every single week uh, by the books that I read, the people I speak to. So I think, let's see, seven years old, what was I into? Uh, Dinosaurs. 
soldiers, mil- I mean, let, let's look at what stuck. I studied history at uni. I studied ancient history, the Knights Templars. I love military history. I love anything that's got knights, swords, shields, armor in it. So I'd probably give him, I think how I'd frame this is that real heroes rest or a good knight knows when to rest. Because I think at that point, I was very much using my intelligence as a tool to try and prove myself. And I think if I knew, I I would use the word rest as a proxy for acceptance, really. And knowing that sometimes things are out of your control and that everything's going to work out in the end, maybe actually that that, that would be the simple advice is that your story is going to have a happy ending. You as the knight are going to have a happy ending, regardless of how many dragons get in the way or how many tasks you have that, uh, that block you, how many enemies you have to fight. You will have a happy ending. I think that would probably be my advice. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Yeah, and generally, we haven't taken it back that far to like, you know, the seven-year-old. Normally, it's like, hey, high school. But I'm like, actually, that'd be a, that's a good, uh, that was a good answer there. Because um, I, I, I'm always big on like, how do we just simplify it so much? We get so overcomplicated and, and there's so much stuff in the, in the headspace. It's like, how do we actually simplify mm-hmm. it? Because generally, the, simple, you know, the simplest answer is the right one. So how do we help folks um, maybe in that realm? So I think that's good advice for anyone, not just the seven-year-old. So. Yeah, and if I if I could flip that round, because now I am very curious, if you were to condense the message or the the ethos of the just get started movement to a seven year old wow. and to plant that seed, what would you say? Oh my gosh, that is challenging. Um, it it have to be around. It have to be around happiness. I think because I, you know, that's something I, I think kids, again, I look at it having a, having a, a young son that he understands when he, you know, it's, it's really out of motion. He, when he's happy, when he's sad and he can relate that. So I think it would be something around like, and again, I'm trying to think of how I would actually relay this in communication because I'm thinking in a general setting is every, every decision you make should be toward the lens of happiness, right? That's my more complex answer but like is, is make decisions that make you happy. It's not always going to be the right decision. It's not always going to be the, the one that other people want you to. But I think when you, going back to some of the stuff you had mentioned, I think we have all this imagination as a kid, you know, as kids and, and we look at stuff, you know, it's funny. And I, and I feel to kind of go deeper in this earlier, I guess, but when you're talking about like the study with the two babies and the, and the, uh, and, the, yeah, and yeah. the toy, I think that works that way because babies aren't clouded by it's so subconscious of how they're making decisions it's they're not clouded by anything else and i think there's at some point i was thinking about this um we were uh i took my son to the pool this a few weeks ago whatever and i was and i was just observing you know i'm always thinking about stuff and i was thinking about um something he did that just made me like oh my gosh it, it just it just made me so happy where there was a young, he was like in a, a small kiddie pool he had walked into and there was this mother with a young boy. His boy had to be a, a year and a half, maybe two years. And he was playing with like some, some like ball, right? Uh, my son was. And just randomly, out of the kindness of my heart, he just walked over to the kid and handed him the ball. Oh. And I was thinking, I was like, that's really what we all want in the world is is people to be happy and the world just to be peaceful and happy. 
Mm-hmm. Kids are happy. Kids make good decisions. It's adults that put kids in bad situations to ultimately lead them to become maybe adults that make poor decisions or that aren't happy or that are mean or, you know, we, we know all the sure. things. So I was like, kids are always, every kid I've ever met, they're all the kids are good. It's the influence by the adults that are the problem. Mm. Um, this is a whole deeper discussion. We can go into maybe another time, but <laughs> I'm thinking of it back to your question to to kind of land the plane here is being able to say, make make decisions that make you happy. And if it makes you happy to give the kid the ball or if it makes you happy to help someone that's in need, or if it makes you happy to do whatever you want to do, go that direction because generally that's going to be the right one in the long run. Um, so I don't know I how to simplify it yet. I probably need to to wordsmith it a little bit. Um, but that, that's kind of well, how it is. Here's our challenge, Brian. If I can condense the empathetic communication pitch to a seven-year-old, you've got to con- uh, condense the just get started pitch for a seven-year-old as well. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. I'm going to work right, on game it. On. I'm, I'm going to work on it. <laughs> Dude, this is fun. What uh, So you got the podcast coming up. What other uh, What other ways can folks connect with you online? What are some things you're excited about for the next you know six months, year? Yeah, for sure. Um, best place to find me is on Twitter. My handle's at Ben Bradbury underscore. The, uh, in terms of what I'm excited about, Subject Matter Season 3 is going to be a lot of fun. We're getting some of the final pieces in place now, and that's going to be going live in a month or so. And uh, our YouTube channel as well, if you just search Ben Bradbury Subject Matter, you'll get all of the video episodes that are, that are going to be coming up. But um, in terms of what I'm excited about, um, a lot in the fire, to be honest. Making some, making some key hires right now, um, getting ready to launch a new brand for the agency, which has been really exciting. So putting the, the pieces in place there. Uh, but yeah, very excited for, for 2021 and beyond. And if anyone does have any questions, you can reach out to me directly on Twitter or my email is ben at benbradbury.com if you want to reach out directly. And I, I will give you a, a credit. You're a good follow on Twitter. You're very thoughtful. It's short, concise, but really thoughtful analysis and, and um, thinking and perspective on the world. So definitely a good follow for someone that's uh, that's on Twitter a lot and and wants Thank you. Uh, actually that. to avoid the you know all the crap that's out there. Actually, go to something that's positive and good. So um, <laughs> yeah. Dude, this was a lot of fun, man. I, I'm certainly appreciative of uh, you coming on here and uh, glad to have you and uh, look forward to keeping in touch going forward. This is my pleasure, Brian. Thanks a lot for having me. Real fun. I hope you all enjoyed that interview and thanks again for stopping by. And just one more quick thing before you run along on your day. You know, this podcast has grown very organically since I started it over two and a half years ago. So anything you can do to share this episode out to your network or maybe go to Apple Podcast and leave a rating and review. Um, anything you can do at all, I'd certainly be appreciative of it. Um, if you'd like to connect with me online, my website, brianondraco.com, or head over to Instagram or LinkedIn and Twitter, at brianondraco, or type my name, brianondraco, and it'll come up. I hope you all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.